Go ahead and pick your speed up. You're number one now. Runway 27, clear to land green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Green Dot, coming to you from EAA headquarters here in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. I'm Hal Bryan, Senior Editor for Digital and Print Publications, and with me on my left... I'm Chris Henry, the EA Museum Program's representative. And across the table... Tom Charpentier, Government Relations Director. Now, we are especially happy to uh, finally have worked out a, a time in his busy schedule to welcome aboard uh, the one and only Chairman and CEO of EAA, and, uh, and I, I dare say friend to uh, everyone at the table, everyone in the organization, Jack Pelton. Jack, welcome. Well, thanks, Al. It's great to... Uh be on the green dot. I've listened to a lot of your prior episodes. You've had, you've had a really good lineup of individuals. It's been uh, been fun to listen to the episodes. Well, and it's it's obviously all downhill from here after you, but I uh, figure we got to peak sometime, right? <laughs> well, I'm hoping it's not downhill. I hope that <laughs> I can keep your, you know, your listeners at the same numbers that they are today. Well, let's uh let's hope so. Let's uh and I have no doubt. So <clears throat> what we wanted to do today, Jack, is just uh, uh, spend a bit of time getting to know you, uh, letting, uh, letting the audience, letting our members uh, get to know the real Jack a little bit. You know, we're privileged uh, uh, just about every day to see you around the office and, and talk with you. You're always very open, very approachable, very accessible. And, uh, and here's hoping we can share a little bit of that experience with, uh, with the uh, conservatively uh, 5 billion people that are listening right now. That's, that's my <laughs> yeah, estimate. Last, yeah, I think last week it was close to that, so I'm sure I think this it was. will be a little better. Um, my projections are that after AirVenture, more people will listen than there are people on the planet. So, uh, so we'll be looking at that in my, uh, in my review. Maybe calls. I'll get invited back. <laughs> You're already invited back. So will you join us again? <laughs> Let's see how it goes Yeah, we'll first. see how it goes first, yeah. <laughs> Not commit. Yeah. So, Jack, you have been uh, what we think of as an aviation geek pretty much your whole life. Is that right? Yeah, you know, I really have. I, people, people joke about being a little one-dimensional. It's like, well, <laughs> what are your hobbies, aviation? What are your interests, aviation? What have you done in your entire career, aviation? So that kind of puts me in that. Uh, You're more of a train person, aren't you? A <laughs> uh, who? Yeah. yeah, exactly. We should have got rid of the trains years ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, now the the locomotive uh, cartels will be <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Will be I'll regret us. having said that. Yes, yeah, I always do. Um, <clears throat> so, what uh, as a kid were you building model airplanes, that kind of thing? You know, and uh, I don't think it's a whole lot different today. Although I do have grandkids now, so I can kind of watch what their interests and what they have, have access to. But for for me, when I was a young kid. Um, it was my my dad had a real passion and interest in aviation, even though that wasn't his career. Um, so we that was in the in the home. And three brothers, we would on weekends we would build plastic models. That was kind of the competitive spirit in us. We had um, my tw twin brother and I. We had bunk beds, and on the bottom of his bunk bed was a was a plywood sheet that you put in there protecting. We would put our box tops of the ones that we'd finished would be stapled up so you could see those, and then we had wires across the room where we were hanging our models in there and that was just our our interest at the time it moved on to model rocketry and uh, radio controlled airplanes and, and other things but uh, it was just really it grabbed me at a very very early age and I think so much of that was around the types of airplanes the heroes in the town I grew up was North American aviation which uh, certainly by the time I got a little bit older was moving into the space so it was it was around me but it just had this pole that I just couldn't get away from. Now, your dad flew, didn't he? He did. He, um, right out of, out of high school, he went into the Army Air Corps, and he was, as he would say, uh, just anything that he heard in the air, he was head, head into the air, bicycle over to 
uh, he, he grew up in L.A. And so some of the old L.A. airports, some of the Burbank airports, just as, you know, kids, as I did, you go to the airport and watch airplanes and right. hang out and be a be in. He couldn't wait to get out of high school and into the Army Air Corps. Right? And you think about it, but that's the war was going on at the time. So I think he, he knew what he was getting into. But he flying was the only interest he had. Wow. So what did he fly? He, you know, he started out in the uh, Army Air Corps through a program of basic training in the Ryan PT-22, and that's what he got his wings in. Um, interesting from a family standpoint, he, mo- he married my mother, who went to high school with him also, and she, after he had got his wings, and she was on the bases, and she took up flying, and she got her pilot's license in an interstate cadet down in Malden, Missouri, while he was out doing his training Moved to a BT-13, uh, the, the, the vibrator. That's where he did his, his advanced training and his instrument work. And then they divide you into twins or, or fighters. And he ended up going the twin route, uh, T-50, the bamboo bomber. Very familiar with that Cessna airplane. product, yes. Yes, a Cessna product. And, and the family airplane uh, in my, my childhood that's growing right. up. His, his real desire, and this is kind of neat about Air Venture this year, is we have the A-20 that's here. And he used to talk about this a lot when I was a kid is – he wanted to track to the A-20. That was his. He wanted really? to be in a twin fighter and uh, talked about it all the time. A Douglas product, which, again, there's this connection in my history from right. Cessna and Douglas, but didn't, didn't end up doing that. He flew C-47s and C-46s. Oh, okay. Oh, that's, that's great. Um, fascinating to me that he, of course, would have done multi-engine training in the, in the Bamboo Bomber because that's such a, an airplane so near and dear to me. It's still one in the family. Um, uh, do you remember your very first flight? I do. Actually, my very first flight was uh, in my dad's Cessna 140A, and I was probably about four years old. He used to take my twin brother. Now, think about this, a 140A, the width of the of the airplane. He would take my right. twin brother and I and strap us in in the right seat. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> and uh, and he, was not, he, he wasn't an aviation career person. This was a recreational family right. airplane and go flying in that. So and I have <clears throat> pictures standing next to it very proudly and boldly and maybe a little arrogantly leaning up against the airplane, a little blue blazer saying, I too am going to be an aviation professional. <laughs> and of course, at that time, you would have each had a five-point harness, a helmet, uh, probably deployable airbags. Uh, we always right hoped the door didn't open. You just hope the door didn't open. <laughs> but that's why, that's pretty much you it. know, twin brother, there's always the rivalries is who's smarter and all that. I sure. always took the center seat. Oh, well, yeah. Then. Just if it opened. Yeah. See you, see you, Dan. <laughs> exactly. So uh, so we we know for sure that you're the smart one. It's debatable. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, As my mother used to say with twins, she said, right. who has the brain today? Ah, right. Yeah. Yeah. And you're not identical. Twins, no, not at all. So not at all. So you're the good looking one. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, yeah. no, no question yeah. about it. No. I kind of hope so, they were identical and there'd be like an evil jack somewhere or something. <laughs> that would have been <laughs> <Yeah>. fun. <laughs> Assuming that. That we got the good one. Well, that's true. That's, that's a, very true. That's that's true. I think yeah. it's a, yeah. I think it's a fair <laughs> assumption. Almost every day, I would attest to that. Yeah. <laughs> so early on, were you a, a member of EA Chapter One out of Flay Bob? Is that correct? Yeah, my dad was, and and took us. That was the only chapter that's close by to where we lived. And you know, in that in that early '60s, '70s era in Southern California, there were so many airfields and and just air shows and activities and fly-ins going all the time. Um, and out there in Rubido, which is where the actual airport is, Flaybob, it was just incredibly vibrant with a lot of restoration work, World War One stuff, World War II, uh, just GA activity in general. So um, that was his hobby. My dad's hobby also was purely aviation. So uh, we spent, as my sister would say, gee, my older sister, I'm the young, youngest in the family, 
oh, another family vacation. We're going to an air show to stand under the wing <laughs> when it's 100 degrees to try to stay in the shade and drink Orange Crush. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds perfect to yeah, me. I, 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 who's complaining? I, I, I look for that every weekend. Yeah, it's like, come exactly. on. Yeah. Well, you, and you mentioned something else that was kind of interesting. You mentioned World War One aviation, and you mentioned a, an organization that I had never heard about. Can you tell us a little bit about yeah, that? Yeah. Um, again, and I didn't. I don't think I shared when my dad got out of the Army Air Corps and the war was over. Um, my mo- the, the airlines were hiring. He really wanted to go on to a career in, in aviation. And my mother uh, wanted to make an honest man out of him. Wanted him to become a professional and not a pilot chasing flight attendants around the world, and at least that was the belief. Um, and so he went now, to, I wouldn't be here if there weren't men like right. that, just and, to be clear. Well, and here's his story was, is that, that uh, so he went to dental school, and so did my mother. And when we were in junior high and all the other kids had color TVs and we had a black and white TV, he'd always say, if your mother would have let me been a captain in the airlines, you'd have a color TV too. So, <laughs> so but his, so his hobbies and interests, he had a phenomenal library of aviation books and he was involved in EA Chapter 1 and then also involved in Crossing Cockade, which in Southern California was a World War I historian society. And it was kind of like an EA chapter. They met in the TRW building in Redondo Beach, which was kind of the up-and-coming space activity once a month. And that was in a time where we still had our World War I vets that were still alive. Um, we had – he would drag us as kids along to all the meetings and it was uh, – fascinating because you'd have these former World War I vets, pilots, historians giving talks, presentations, similar to the ones you give, Chris, on B-17 and B-25. And uh, you'd be fascinated hearing and seeing the old pictures and seeing the memorabilia and displays that they would have. And they put out a journal, and you can still find them occasionally in used bookstores that are really detailed factual historical um, data on World War One aircraft, and the society was called Cross and Cockade, which was the, the the cockade symbol on the side of an airplane and a cross. And it was it was uh, really really well done. I couldn't imagine actually hearing World War One aviators talk about you know flying combat. That that'd be amazing. Yeah, it, it really was, and and the the whole difference compared to later in my life when you hear the World War Two and the higher performance of the airplanes. But you know they're talking. You know, foxholes and, you know, 150 feet in the air with a guy with a bayonet that practically hit you in the belly of your airplane. And, and then they still had a lot of, uh, of airplanes that were still around. They had a lot of static display of the engines that they would run at the, at the uh, meetings. And, you know, it was just, wow. it was just wonderful, wonderful time. Wow, that's incredible. And then it was gone. I mean, by the time I was in high school, they were all gone. The, associate, the society was gone because they, they still did some, some writing and uh, collecting of the data, but there was, there were no more lectures left. There were no more heroes from that era. Yeah, we're losing our World War II veterans at, at a rapid rate currently, and unfortunately, it, I mean, it's not too far off on the horizon when, you know, we're going to be in that situation where we're not going to have the the World War II vets to firsthand give us, you know, the the, the presentations and the talks, and got to really enjoy them now while we have them. Yep, you know, I think of Father's Day's coming up, and uh, hopefully, my kids will remember that I'm their father. But, you know, I reflect on, on my dad, and my mom and dad have been gone for a while, and I think of how old they would be today, and yet they were at the very end of the war. And you think, wow, just statistically, it's scary. Yeah. 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 It sure is. Yeah, um, and I mean, uh, we're having Dick Cole here, um, you know, the last of the Doolittle Raiders, and uh, he is, how old is he, Chris? He's 101, Yeah. and then right after the event, I think he turns 102, like right mm. after the show. Yeah, it's like God the next month. Him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. talked to him down at the Raider reunion in Dayton. He was like, "I'll be there." <laughs> you know, he's just 
you know, you encounter somebody like that, and uh, um, not only is it so amazing they're going strong at, you know, more than more than twice our age, uh, but uh, you think about what they've done, what they've seen, and how it's so matter of fact to them. I have to help you with your math. It's well, not... he's, he's more than twice <laughs> my age, Jack. Yeah, yours, not mine. Well. <laughs> Close enough. Close enough. Yeah. You, you look twenty-seven. Yeah. I know people can't see you here, but mm-hmm. uh, you I, have I this, dye my hair gray. You, you have this youthful <laughs> glow about yeah. you. Yeah, it's just the the gray ends gravitas. Mm-hmm. But uh, I don't know. You look. I can only imagine you hearing these World War One pilots, and then certainly the experiences that we have when we're very various times privileged to speak to the World War Two vets and do interviews or or share stages with them or something like that. And I look at any one of those, one of those guys, much less somebody like Dick Cole involved in something as pivotal as uh, as the Doodle Raid, and I just I shrug and say I don't know what I am. I'm not a man, I, <laughs> you know. I, but uh, uh, it just it, we have things. We're so blessed. We have things so, relatively speaking, so easy now compared to. Oh, uh, we do, we do, and and you know, and I don't consider myself old, but to think and be able to see the history that I, I was the other day trying to write down a list of heroes that I have met just had the opportunity, you know, whether it be Neil Armstrong or other, other folks. And, and you start feeling like you're old because you, you got to go to, as a, as a very young kid, you got to go hear the World War I guys. You grew up in an era where Gunther Rahl and, and everybody was accessible here at Air Venture as right. you come as a kid and, yep. and they'd be around and you'd hear these great stories. And then, um, you know, also growing up in the city of Downey, where North American was, is I would watch the Apollo program unfold in front of. So you see this continuum of World War One all the way up to somebody putting their foot on the moon, which uh, is fascinating to have been a part of that. And it kind of keeps you pumped up as to what's next. What right. We, you know, th- there's a point here where the four of us, if we put our shekels together, we might be able to get a ride to you know, into space Absolutely. in the next couple of years. Yeah, yeah. that's it's coming fast. Mm-hmm. And will there ever be a period like that from? 1903 to 1969, will there ever be any kind of anything that innovates that quickly again? And it's it's hard to conceive of what it would be. I mean, certainly, we've seen the electronics age, the computer revolution, and the information age is probably the closest analog we have at this point. But who knows? As as space travel becomes commercialized, mm-hmm. any number of things can happen. Yeah, and you know, we had Charlie Precourt on a, a, a couple of episodes. Well, I'm not sure when this when this episode airs, it will be either last he, he, episode or a few. He's episodes been on ago. more than one. No, he's only been on the one. <laughs> okay, but just uh, checking. No. But yeah, you're um, the only one track. we've ever invited back, and we invited you back before we even started. So it's still early. It's still, <laughs> yeah. It could all still go horribly wrong. Right. Yeah. But yeah, a few you know a few episodes ago, we had Charlie on, and uh, we we talked with him about you know the future of uh, of our space program, and I think one of the most valuable things that we are hopefully going to get out of the next evolution of our space program is, um, you know, the heroes and role models that that we've had, um, you, you know, in, in previous generations. And I think that kind of um, kind of dovetails with um, uh, the question I'm I'm, uh, I'm kind of pointing toward here is, uh, you know, when we when I take tour groups around the museum, especially the younger kids, and I I take them over to the Spirit of St. Louis replica that we have here in the museum, I I say, uh, so uh, who here could tell me who Charles Lindbergh was? And I just get blank stares. I'm just, I'm flabbergasted by that because, I mean, I just took that for granted. And, okay, so that's a very roundabout way of getting into the question I was going to ask you, which is what are some of the positives and negatives that we have to overcome to get new people into aviation? And maybe if you could relate a little bit about your experience of learning to fly into um, what's some of the challenges that we're facing right now. Yeah, I, I'd like to go back to your question about the heroes and some of the sure. where we've been because 
you know, there's also a, a enormous number of people that I think the four of us are very familiar with, the Burt Rutans, the Mike Belvilles, sure. um, the uh, folks that did the X Prize. Uh, Hal gave me a book that I just finished getting through on on space. That's a must read. And, and how that's probably I, Julian Guthrie's y- yeah, book. Yeah, yeah, how to make a spaceship. Absolutely, and you know, shameless fat, plug, but a wonderful story. It really is. But there, there's that other innovative side that was going on. Uh, you know, today we hear about. Bezos and Blue Origin, and you hear about Elon Musk. This has been going on for a long time yeah. in, in our EA community. I mean, we were aware of it, but probably the rest of the world and kids weren't. Yeah. And how do we get that exposure to folks that there has been a lot of um, independent and private innovation that is remarkable? I mean, breathtaking stories when you when you read and hear hear what has take, taken place. Sure. Um, so that was a Huge deviation around <laughs> what's it going to take to get kids to, to learn to fly. I, we normally run a very tight ship uh, on this particular program, Jack. You, but, do, you guys uh, do we'll on everything, it. but I'll give you a little a little flex time on this one. Yeah. You're the boss, boss. Yeah. Um, you know, I, again, I'm a little bit jaded in that I came from a family that had an aviation background, and my dad had a little Cessna 140A that I had access to. So I had a lot of flight time with him in advance. Um, ended up getting my private pilot's license 40 years ago last March, um, hoping to make that 50-year one to get that master pilot's award they give. But um, and, and got involved in a flying club early on. I, my, my folks didn't give us anything. We, we, we worked. We paid our own way. And I think you can still do that today, yet there's still the belief that it's just too expensive. We're, we're our worst marketing department is, are those of us in aviation. I used to talk about that when I was involved with, with Gamma is the, everybody talks about the hurdles, the costs, the prices. They don't talk about how you can manage around that. There are yeah. ways. I mean, sport pilot's license is one great example. Um, joining flying clubs that we're trying to, at EA, create and develop through our chapter network. An experimental home-built airplane compared to a brand-new Cessna to go build and fly is literally 25% of the cost of a a 172 today. So it's how do we encourage and get those stories out and help show people pathways that there is a way to get into aviation, to learn to fly, and to be a part of this um, at a more reasonable. I'm never going to be bold enough because everybody will write letters and send things in saying, is he crazy to say that it's affordable? <laughs> but but can you make it reasonable? Can you decide that you know instead of uh, becoming a water skier and having a boat and all that, that can you get that on par with other choices you have to make with hobbies? And I, and I will admit, if you're going to get into aviation, you really don't have the time and affordability to do other things. So you, it is a little single focus. You can't be spreading your, your interest across a lot of areas. But I, I think, Tom, that's a big, uh, something we really got to work on. We, yeah. We've just got to, and you know, you look at our EA flying club, every uh, intern, new employee, people I meet, just to come work at EA to have access to the flying club is is well worth the approach. We had one at Cessna. We did the same thing. Mm-hmm. We, uh, matter of fact, I spoke at their flying club a couple months ago, and they they very graciously were um, patting me on the back for we we put in all new airplanes and rotated them every two years, and we subsidized what it cost to rent and learn to fly because wow. one we wanted to make it a be- employee benefit, one we wanted to make it an attractive place to work. One, we wanted people to be knowledgeable in aviation, so we were going to give them the opportunity to do that. Um, and so part of that was how do you help make it af- affordable. And there are, p- there are flying clubs and people doing that today. 
Yeah, I think what I usually say to people is um, you can do it. I mean, I learned to fly and, you know, I, I had relatively – I didn't have any unreasonable means when I was learning to fly. I mean, I was fresh out of college with an entry-level job. Um, but you have to want it. You, you do. You have to dedicate yourself. And I, I think that's part of the challenge that we have is um, we need to demonstrate that value proposition so that people want it. Um, and then we've got something. Then we've got um, something we can work with. I, I knew I wanted it, and the, 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 I got great mentoring from my father, who, uh, you know, very practical guy. And he said, look, if you're going to go on this journey and you're going to spend your money to do this, a couple things that I really think is important for you to consider, and I wouldn't encourage you to do this unless you did this. He said, one, get your written done first. And he said, because the flying part's fun. The written's no fun, and you'll get – You'll burn a bunch of hours and you come time to take your test or your your actual flying test and you won't have your written done. So get that out of the way. Go to ground school. Do that. And then make sure you have a path financially to get through it so that you don't have to stop and start because then that just gets to become more expensive. And then please, please, please fly at least 50 hours a year. Stay proficient. Stay current. Find a way to do that. So that that was helpful. Yeah. I think that is one of the uh – uh, one of the biggest messages that as an organization that that we can and certainly try to focus on is is some of the why and because when when you understand why you want to do it that's that's when you figure out that it's worth it that it's worth the sacrifices you're talking about well you know maybe somebody might choose an airplane over a, a jet ski and a ski boat or something like that um, it it's fascinating to me you know living in different parts of the country sort of what the sort of local priorities are um, you know, coming uh, from a uh, 2EA from sort of the greater Seattle area, uh, working for Microsoft out there and being around a lot of, you know, a lot of people higher up than me with, uh, you know, very, very comfortable salaries and things. Even even then, it was very unusual to hear of people who had, say, a second home. But I come to Wisconsin, everybody has a weekend home. Everybody has a cottage, a cabin. They've got something up north, something like that. And I'm not here to suggest, well, you know, sell that thing and buy an airplane. Well, I would. <laughs> but uh, uh, it's, it's interesting to me that that is just it is a very, very normal thing. And even people with uh, sort of the most modest incomes seem to have a second home in this part of the country. And that's very foreign to me from another region. So I think it's just examples of that as you move around. What are your priorities? What are your but, but how community do you, priorities? And I love when people can relate it to something real like that. And, I, and, and you know, we have an obligation to share that with, with individuals to right. say – you know, an Aronka champ versus a new Harley. You can get a champ cheaper than a new Harley. Yep, absolutely. And so a lot of people don't think twice of, I'm going to take out a loan, buy a Harley, and that's going to be my weekend weekend fund, thinking that aviation, there is no possible way that that would ever sure. fit that financial profile. And so we've, I know we have to do more in our magazine and other, giving people where are these places they can go and how do they how they enter into aviation at a, a reasonable cost point right and for me it was a choice between learning to fly and having a car i was living in mm. boston so i had the luxury of uh, having a fairly good you know public transportation system i just got really good at navigating it and uh, i need a car for a few years and that's how i was able to fund it oh, that's great yeah i was very very lucky very spoiled with uh, my dad as a pilot and living on a private airstrip and everything else it's just you know it was it was there for the taking and thank goodness i took it you know, but I, I went through getting, you know, coming out of high school with a pilot's license, found a flying club at Long Beach Airport that had, you know, you sacrifice the FBO, nice couch and friendly people and newer airplanes, but you could 
you could that was an affordable price point to fly. And then when I joined Douglas Aircraft as my first career in aviation, they had a flying club called Wings West. And again, we would buddy up. We'd uh, you know you, you got to look at it a little bit differently. You can't always be in the left seat, but you can always get somebody to go with and stay in the right seat and stay you know current as to hearing the the ATC transmissions and the planning effort and all that. And it's just and and I'm I'm probably. It's, I'm difficult in that I was just addicted. I mean, I was going <laughs> to do this at whatever it takes. But, you know, getting married, growing up, having kids, more responsibilities financially, you know, buy that first house. My wife didn't want to live in a hangar, um, unfortunately. <laughs> the, uh, you know, you, you, there was a lot of trade-offs and a lot of times where then I had to slow down and, and sure. uh, balance it out. I guess my, my kind of path was a different one because it was all through college. So sure. all, of, all of my flying was all toward getting my degree uh, to be a controller. And uh, I was actually amazed the first time I went to an airport that didn't have a control tower. <laughs> it was like, well, what do you do here? <laughs> you know, but, uh, Who tells you but, where you to know, go? It was all part of, I mean, you had a curriculum where you had to fly so many times a week, and it was all structured. And it was also all part of the cost of getting your degree and coming out of school. I, I will watching, you know, whether it be my brothers and sisters or friends, and you, you kind of look and analyze what went well, what didn't go well in their attempting to learn to fly. Because, you know, as we all know, the, the, the success rate isn't very high. Um, and, and there's things that you can help people by giving them that experience that you had or you've seen and learned. One for, for me was uh, being committed to at least fly a couple times a week and, and get it done. Don't, don't take it as a, oh, I'll get to it when I can. You really got to say... I'm motivated to get across the finish line. And then the other piece that I always share with people is once you have that certificate, you have it for life. Now, you have to get current again or do BFRs, but they can't ever take that away from you. It's forever, you know, emblazoned on your legacy. You're here. Now, you were talking about balance and uh, and choices and things. Now, you're at a position uh, in, in your career. Um, you know, we, uh, we sort of shanghai you out of retirement to, uh, to come Because I, be... I don't know how to balance life. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. All I, right. Well, lesson I failed, learned. I failed retirement. <laughs> you failed retirement. Yeah. You were bored and you know it. <laughs> um, so you, you came out of retirement to come and, and, uh, and be chairman of the board and then acting CEO and now, of course, uh, of course uh, permanent CEO with uh, no retirement anywhere on the horizon, I, I insist, and you heard it here first, folks. But, uh, but still, speaking of that balance, you've, you've got... Uh, an enviable collection of, of airplanes uh, in your hangar. Can you step I us do. through each of I those do. real quick? I, I want to address, though, the balance in the the, the – uh, <laughs> here – I transitioned from, from corporate America and – but aviation my whole career. But being a part of VA my entire life, this is like dying and going to heaven. I mean, if they don't – now, my son's a minister, so don't – let him know my definition of heaven, or we'll have we'll get into some strong, stronger debates. But I am friends with him on Facebook. Yeah, I know you, know, you are. So. Yeah. But you know, he, he saw it last year, and with his kids, and he he might agree it's at least a slice of heaven. Yeah. So so part of the draw for me was now I'm doing something that's fun. I mean, that's really not that the other stuff wasn't fun, but that was a career. This is now an opportunity to really get involved in your passion and give back, and hope you can make it make a difference. Um, the career side, though, allowed me financially to have some pretty pretty unique airplanes. Um, starting with probably the one that was the most important was, as I mentioned, my dad learned to fly an Orion PT-22. And growing up in the house, uh, you know, loved hearing stories from dad about flying the Maytag Messerschmitt, as it was called, <laughs> at his primary training base. And, and hearing the stories of, you know, dad, I heard the airplane's dangerous and they, you know, crashed a lot and killed a lot of people. And he said, well, yeah, we were 18. 
We had 10 hours under our belt. We soloed and we were all out dogfighting. And, and, you know, and we were invincible because the war is going on and you didn't know if you were coming home anyway. Um, so I have a Ryan PT-22 that came from uh, the airfield that he got his wings in, which was Sequoia Field in Visalia, California. And uh, it was a serial number of one of the ones he had flown. And so it was a pretty pretty important find for me and something that I always thought if I ever had the wherewithal to do, I would – and I love that airplane. Back back in the day, Ryan's were primarily West Coast-based training airplanes, and they had some phenomenal Ryan air shows and when there were a lot of them still flying that we would go to as a family. Uh, and you just fell in love with that pockety-pockety-pockety of that, that Ryan going <laughs> over, overhead. So that's one of them. Um, and my son is named Ryan after – the Ryan, which he still gives me grief over that uh, deep down dad's more interested in airplanes than he is in his children. But uh. so I'm indirectly named after an airplane too, but that's a story for another day. Ah, so I told him I could have named him Consolidated Volte after the BT-13, <laughs> but true. he might have got beat up at school. The, uh, the, the next airplane that uh, is again of historical interest is uh, my Cessna 195, which was the second to the last one produced. It's a B model. Um, 1954. That airplane was owned by Dwayne Wallace, who was Clyde Cessna's nephew, who really Clyde got frustrated in the Depression and turned the company over to Dwayne, who had just graduated as an aeronautical engineer from Wichita State um, and ran the company up till 1975. And when he retired, he bought this 195 because that was the airplane that he liked the best out of the Cessna series airplanes. He brought it to Oshkosh back in the 80s and won a bronze Lindy and had it on display and there's a sticker in the window. He passed away in the 80s and Rose and I became good friends with his his widow, uh, Velma Wallace. We were at an event one day and and uh, I'm sitting, Velma's sitting between Rose and I and Velma and I are chatting about 195s and um, she said, I understand you really enjoy him too. She said, my kids aren't into aviation this airplane's been sitting for 18 years in Liberal, Kansas, in a museum. Um, would you be interested in buying it? I said, well, I certainly would. And she reached over, grabbed my hand, and said, sold. <laughs> Rose is on the other side, and she le- Velma leaned over to Rose and said, well, you guys are proud owners of New Wonder. And she's looking at me, leaning behind Velma. Said, what, what's going on? What, what, what just happened? I said, well, there's I'm no not price. really. No, no, no price, no nothing. <laughs> Never have seen the airplane. I'm not sure what really happened. And uh, Rose, being such a great sport, said, okay, well, let's go down to Liberal, Kansas. And we took a flying club air, airplane. an hour and a half flight down there and looked at it and said, hmm, uh, it's been sitting for 18 years and don't know what to offer. I mean, so anyways, we got it all done. Got the deal done. Got the airplane back, ferried it home to Wichita. Took about nine months to go through it, uh, top to bottom. Then brought it to Air Venture in 2007 and won the same bronze Lindy Award. So I have the sticker from when Dwayne had it in the window and when I had it in the window. So it's a special piece of history. I think you know that will be one. I hope Cessna um, would accept it, or maybe EA for the museum. Um, at some point when I'm done flying and I donate it to one of them because I think it still needs to live in history somewhere. Absolutely. One of my great regrets, and I think I've told you this before, Jack, was uh, my first trip to Oshkosh, 1989, with a, a gaggle of the Cessna T-50s, the Bamboo Bombers, about nine of the dozen or so we thought were flying at the time. Uh, it was that Dwayne Wallace was supposed to be here uh, and to come out and see the airplanes, and he was ill and wasn't able to make it. But a small group, a contingent of our group, did go and visit him uh, or wherever he was sort of laid up at the time and got to meet him. I didn't, I didn't go or I wasn't able to or couldn't make the time or something. And 
so didn't get a chance to meet him. But uh, fabulous man, been, yeah, just a, a, a you know complete passionate aviation guy. When he wasn't running Cessna on weekends, he was out at uh, EA chapters or other places, just enjoying aviation. Yeah. All right. So then you uh, you have a going places airplane too, in addition to the 195 and the PT22 Skycatcher. <laughs> <laughs> going places, places quickly with uh, with other people. Yeah, uh, I I um I do have a Cessna 414 that I use for family transportation and there's kind of a weird story around I had a 206 and state of Kansas taxes on personal property tax airplanes that are that are newer up to I think it's 25 years. And it just wasn't affordable the tax when I retired it just paying that property tax wasn't so we went out and looked for what would be the best airplane with kids all over the US and transportation and we ended up with this 414 that just worked out very very well for us that's great and then i do have a historical steerman let's not forget that no no when i retired my hangar um was on steer is on steerman field just out east of wichita kansas one kilo one and it was named we renamed it was benton air park and it was we renamed it because there were so many steermans now gaggling on the airport there were nine of them and so when I retired, Rose says, well, what do you really want to do when you retire? And I said, I want to hang out at the airport and fly steerman's with all my retired buddies that are doing that every day that I'm so jealous and envious of. <laughs> so for a retirement uh, gift, we f- she found a steerman to buy me in Boston, uh, went and took delivery of that. It was, uh, matter of fact, the gentleman who had owned it since 1963 just passed away here recently and his family oh sent uh, the photos of me taking delivery of the airplane because it was he was so glad it was going to Stearman Field in a, in a good home. And it's right. probably one of my favorite favorite airplanes to fly. The uh, the aircraft are certainly one part of it, but of course the the friendships and the and the people are a, a large part of it as well. And, and that is synonymous with uh, Oshkosh and EAA. Can you tell us some of uh, maybe the friendships or memorable accomplishments or moments in your aviation career that really stand out for you? You know, the the friendship pieces you mentioned, Chris, it, I, I hang out at airports with what I call guys that I think are like me. And people will probably say, well, you're you know executive and all that. And that's not who I really am. I'm, I'm like an airport bum, and I enjoy <laughs> hanging out with other airport bums. And, and I like the fact that none of us care or know what any of us did in life. That's not the important piece. The important piece is we all have a like-minded thing about aviation that has sucked us in. Um, Career-wise, I've met just some fantastic people that have been, you know, phenomenal mentors to me from uh, uh, developing my own professional skills and abilities to to grow and have taken me under their wing uh, over the years. And some of them are just some very, very interesting people. Press Henny, who he has the patent on the, on the C-17 wing, uh, which developed a very unique wing for that and then moved on to Gulfstream and is the G, father of the G-650 and was... Able to try to make it go faster than the Citation 10, but <laughs> we were able to stay ahead of them by a knot. Really, one yeah, knot. One knot, yeah. Wow. And then, you know, you travel just around the country at uh, air shows and air parks and places and, and hang out. And the stories are just fascinating of people that you meet that you have just no idea what their background and they start telling you. Like, you wish you could document all of them, which I know you try to do. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, Jack, uh, and this kind of relates back to the uh, to the first question that um, that I asked about, um, you know, learning to fly and getting new people into aviation. Is um, what are some of the challenges that are facing the, um, I guess, kind of more broadly the general aviation community, but maybe a little bit more specifically uh, EAA, uh, as you see it. Uh, you know, the, the the I get asked the question a lot, and I think part of the the challenge we have is 
I'm a big proponent of matter, and I hope I never age out. I mean, I'm, I always want to stay current on change and what's the latest trends and what drives and motivates people so you can stay up on, you know, you, you just don't become that dinosaur guy. And I think part of that is, is as Hal was talking earlier, we've seen since the Wright brothers flown, the world has changed. It's no longer round, it's flat, and it's technology's going like crazy. And how do we understand that in attracting young people to aviation? When I got attracted to it, I didn't, you know, while I may have been an aviation geek, there weren't a lot of other choices. I mean, there was, you know, you go be a, hang out at the ballpark and, you know, that wasn't great for a 5'8 slow guy um, <laughs> from a, you know, interest level. I mean, there's just, you didn't have as many interests. And then I look at now my grandkids and they're inundated with information, activities, uh, not as much freedom. They can't just jump on their bicycle and go hang out all day like we did as kids. So I'm, I'm really trying to spend a lot of time on our strategic initiatives DA to figure out what can we do to penetrate that new world that we're in and make aviation become a relevant piece of it to where they are. You know, you know if it's after school, is it on an app on their phone? Is it you know, chapter activities that draw them out? Is it other things like our, our partnerships that we now have with AMA to, to help show that there's these interest level paths that can keep paths that can keep you interested before you're actually eligible age-wise to jump in. Um, we have a, a new activity that we're scratching our heads around on sailplanes. You know, you can solo it at 14. So yeah. um, that's a two-year advantage that we can, you know, join with SSA to figure out how to open that up to young people. I, I also am a firm believer that this technology that Hal always educates me on because <laughs> I still have a flip phone. No, I'm just, <laughs> just kidding. I'm, yeah, I, I try to stay up on it. But simulation, you know, the virtual stuff, I think we're way behind as a, an industry, aviation industry, in bringing that into people's daily lives like they're already intruding us with other things. You know, so how do we become a part of that? Well, it's actually kind of part of how I got to aviation. Um, basically, uh, Hal, without knowing it, taught me how to talk on the radio. Uh, so, <laughs> Thanks to Microsoft Flight Sim. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, Tom was very familiar with my voice by the time we actually met. Uh, See, and, and it's interesting because Hal taught me social media. <laughs> and wow. So it, it, back before I came to EA, we kind of knew each other through social media. That's right, and, yeah. And, you know, he'd send me those private messages that says, you know, Jack, don't post that. You'll regret it later, <laughs> later, later in life. And so, the Internet is permanent. Yeah, exactly. Did you mean that to be public? Yeah. And but he introduced me to all the aviation pages. So just, right. and, and, Chris, let's not talk about what I've taught you. you did, did, nobody's business mm -hmm. but ours. Yes, yes. I'll, it'll be in my magazine story eventually. <laughs> Excellent. So. Oh, that's great. Um, <clears throat> Well, uh, uh, Jack, I just to finish that thought, I, I, I just wanted to um, to say that you know uh, we've worked a lot together on the government advocacy stuff, and um, it's, it's been enjoyable, Tom. Yeah, yeah, and and um, I, I just have to say it's been it's been awesome working with you. But I feel that the government advocacy work, and we talked about this in a previous episode, um, it, it I view our job as kind of preserving and creating the environment in which aviation can grow, but. Our, you know, our, our work is by no means um, the end-all and be-all to fixing aviation. I think it, it really kind of comes down to, uh, to everybody here in, at EAA and, and out in the chapters and the, and the community. It doesn't, but, you know, you look at our history and how EAA's role in advocacy, yeah. which is truly unique compared to the other associations. I, you know, you, you get the people who have PACs in their Washington Beltway Association stuff – um, yeah, that's what they do, but it's not who we are. And I think what's really fascinating, and I hope our members appreciate, you go back to Paul 
and what Paul initially created indirectly as an advocacy person. He created the rules and regulations that allowed amateur-built airplanes to be able to, to be built, flown, and have access to our airspace 60-some-odd years ago, which is incredible. Then we went into the light sport movement, which EA was you know, integral in making, making that happen. And then you look at today, and one of the facts that I, you know, coming from the Part 23 certified world and Part 25, if you look at the EAB movement, there are more planes being registered on an annual basis that are experimental amateur built than there are coming out of all of the Part 23 factories across the world. I don't, I don't think people understand and appreciate that that was an EA movement that happened through advocacy that now is really keeping general aviation alive at the local level. I mean, you wouldn't – airports, hangars, pumping gas, repair parts, service – you know, God bless you and thank you, Paul, for making that happen. And, and to our advocacy team today that through relationships with the FAA, relationships with elected officials, do it in a, in a partnering way to make impactful, positive change for our society. It's not, you know, going in and trying to be like what's going on in Washington today, polarizing situations. We are actually doing these things to give people an opportunity, which is fantastic. And, Tom, your team does it better than anybody I know. Well, it's amazing when you think about uh, if you took that the situation with airplanes, and then you uh, extrapolated that to, uh, or if you applied that to cars, uh, nobody could. You, you can't wrap your head around the fact that if you drive down the road and you figure that the, at least the simple majority of the cars you would see people built themselves at home. <laughs> right. What kind of strange, strange world that would that would be? But that's uh, that's where we are in in aviation. And as you say, thank goodness uh, that we've had that opportunity. But that's uh, what makes EA so – I mean, I, maybe that's why I'm so passionate and glad to be a part of the organization have been is if we understand that, appreciate it, and share it, um, this is a slice of Americana that I, I just wish everybody knew about. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and Jack, as, uh, as we start winding up, uh, you know, um, in the uh, eight years uh, as of yesterday that I've been working at EA and, and much, much longer than that as a member and somebody involved with the organization, but certainly in the last eight years – you know, I've seen a lot of uh, a lot of changes in the organization uh, here in Oshkosh, and uh, you came along at a time when uh, this organization, uh, not just on staff, but I think every member, uh, whether they realized it or not, they desperately needed you. And uh, I don't want to just sit here and blow blow sunshine, but uh, it's a it, it's an opportunity. I don't think we take enough just to say thank you for. Stepping in, uh, stepping in when you did for being the leader, uh, leader and friend uh, that you are to all of us, or being just uh, just another airplane geek uh, <laughs> whose office is a little bigger than the rest of ours, and uh, um, but but being uh, being absolutely the real deal. Um, so I, thinking uh, thinking back on your career, if you forgive an awkward segue, um, you know time at uh, at. Uh, Douglas at uh, Dornier, if I remember correctly, of course, at, uh, a lot of time at Cessna, and now here at EAA. Um, as we sit here recording this, we've got two two younger people in the room. We've got two interns. Uh, we've got uh, uh, Ty, who's our publications intern, who is uh, taking on the uh, uh, the daunting task of editing uh, editing these podcasts for us. And God bless him for doing that, for making us sound coherent. Yeah. The three of us sound coherent. Jack always sounds good. And then uh, Lily's here from the advocacy team. So. If you were to to look at them and give them uh, a, a short bit of career advice, what would you? Uh, and, and they can hear you, and they can see you. <laughs> we can't hear them. Thank goodness. No. What would, would you? What do you say to somebody at uh, at their point in their careers? 
You know, I, I found, and, and the formula worked for me, but I also like to give it as, as advice as to, you know, make sure that you get involved in something that interests you. I mean, if you can't get up every morning and be interested in going to work, go do something else. Don't, don't waste your life away doing that. And then when you do find your passion, jump in with both feet. And from a development standpoint, be curious. Ask questions. Try to understand what's going around, not only in the area you're in, and each of you being in different areas, but how the whole ecosystem works. Because it, it gives you bigger insights and understandings on issues and makes you, in my mind, more valuable. And it gives you much more opportunity to grow and develop and move into other areas. I mean, I did everything from working on the shop floor to engineering to contract management to program management to eventually being a CEO. And, and the great awakening for me becoming a CEO was there's no manual that tells you how to be a CEO, <laughs> that it's your experiences along the way that help develop your ability to know all of those different pieces. And then recognize where your shortcomings are and try to shore those up. I, you know, Becoming a CEO, probably the biggest area that I had to be dependent and find good help and surround myself was around legal and HR. Um, because there is a lot of regulatory stuff on that. So I knew that was a weakness for me. I knew design development operations real well. And I just encourage people to expand. Take a leap into a different area if you have to. It's it's great growth um, and keeps you learning and excited and, and moving on. I, the learning piece to me is is really important. If you feel like you're just getting into a, you know, a cube where you're just staring at your screen, reach out and find out where else to go on, move on. Here, here. All right. Well, with that... Uh Jack, we thank you again for taking time out of your schedule to uh, to join us today, and uh, uh, especially given the fact that we've uh, we've definitely uh, run a longer episode this time, but it doesn't feel like it to me. Uh, to me, the time the time just zips right by. This and we is... won't charge anybody extra today. So. <laughs> Not today. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so but next time. So what's the? Uh, is there a secret ballot here relative to? Uh, did I make the cut to get invited back at some time? We're going to start uh, like the SNL five times. Well, well, we're out of time. time. Are you guys, uh, yeah. guys going to let me come to work Friday, Monday, or have I been <laughs> let go? I think Chris said uh, Chris said it best. We'll, uh, we'll have you on four more times, and we get you the blazer, the five-timers. Yeah, five-timers. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Five yeah. SNL. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Have Steve Martin and Alec Baldwin yeah. here to, uh, to give it to you. So. Uh, but uh, anyway, kidding aside, thank you very much again. Uh, this has been very enjoyable. It always is. It's always it's always good to talk with you. Uh, it's just a little bit different this time that we're recording it and sharing it with the world. Uh, <laughs> so hopefully it's been it's been at least reasonably appropriate. So with that, thanks to everybody for listening. Uh, can, thanks can I as end always. This? You you can end it. And because I think part of this is who can do the best, Hal Bryan. <laughs> so <laughs> oh, here uh, we go. So this is Hal Bryan from the Green Dot. Thank you for listening, and look forward to you coming back again. Until next time, when you're cleared to land on the green dot. See, I didn't do my homework. I needed to, I should have learned the catchphrase. There you go. (laughs) All right. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time.